This is Richard Simmons at the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. Today I'm talking about the pearl of great value. I hope you enjoy it. Last week we looked at these two parables that were connected and they're short but if you remember Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like and he shares the, these parables and we looked real closely at one of them last week we're gonna look at the other this week but let's do turn to Matthew 13 and it, let's read it won't take but a second to read it again and Cobb Hagen I'll let you read it if you would when we get there Matthew 13 44 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay. Thank you, sir. One of the things that we said last week and recognized that, that one of the, the prime <coughs> similarities in both of these parables is that you have a, a man and a person and they, they find something of great value. And they go out and they sell everything to either get that treasure or to get that pearl. And so today, we're, I want to look at two things. We're going to look at what does that mean to sell everything you have in order to get this treasure. And then we'll look specifically at the parable of the, the pearl merchant and what that parable is all about. If you remember last week, I said the one thing we know about, about pearl merchants is that they were wealthy people. They had to have some degree of wealth because they were always buying and trading pearls which had great value. And so they had, they had to have some degree of financial wealth in order to stock their inventory. Now, what I'd like for us to think about is literally, is there anything out in the world that you would sell everything you have your house, your cars, any investments you have, liquidate your retirement account, take all of that and, and, and sell it so you can get something of great value. You know, in order to do that, you, it would have to make everything you own pale in comparison to whatever that object is. But let's try to put this in, in some kind of perspective. Um, imagine you find out you, you're not feeling well. You go to the doctor and they do a battery of tests. They find out that you have a rare disease. And you're told you'll probably be dead in six months. And obviously you, you, you go home in shock. And the next day, the doctor calls you and says, I've been doing some research, and they have just discovered a cure for your disease. 100% cure rate. And it involves surgery, certain medications over a period of time, 
and you'll have to go to this foreign country to get this all done. But it's guaranteed. The only problem is it's very expensive and then you find out your insurance because this is in a foreign country it doesn't cover it. And that you realize I'm going to have to sell everything I have to pay for this. And what you discover in this process or you know this could be your wife has the disease or your kids. But what you discover this cure is so precious to you that all the things you own are not near as important as you thought they were. I mean, it brings a whole new change in attitude towards everything that you own. There's a transformation in your attitude because all the possessions you thought were of such great value, you realize they're ultimately expendable. And once you see that, it changes your attitude towards everything else. And in fact, even in the first, notice in the first parable, he says he does it with great joy. Sells everything he has with great joy to get this treasure. But if you go back to my example of the disease and finding this expensive cure, do you know what's really happened if you're willing to, to, to sell everything, say, let's say for the, for the life of your child? Do you know what really happens? Turn back to, to Matthew 6, and I'll show you what happens. In Matthew 6, we've read this before. Um, in verse 19, it talks about storing up treasures on earth. And then he says, don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. You know, we, we got into that in great detail. But look at verse 21. Charlie Haynes, how about reading that? Look at verse 21. It's a very short little verse, but it's crucial. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Wherever your treasure and riches lie, that's where your heart will be also. And what we're talking about in this little example, what you treasure most has changed. The cure is of greater value than your financial assets. And see, this is the thing, I think, as we get into this parable, you'll see everybody in this life have things that their hearts treasure. And unfortunately for most people, what their hearts treasure most is often temporal. They're not, and it's not of any real importance in the grand scheme of things. And what happens is we don't seem to value or we don't seem to treasure that which is of supreme value and supreme worth. But you know, this is what happened to the Apostle Paul. I mean, just a, a great example of realizing what is the great treasure of life. You remember, that we, talk, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the issue of contentment. You see, Paul, before becoming Paul, was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He was a kind of a top dog Pharisee because of all the training he'd gotten. And if you read the Gospels, you learn a lot about the Pharisees. They're, they're, they are men of great prestige. And they like that prestige. 
They like the approval of man. But we also learn they have great wealth. In fact, in Luke 16, 14, we're told the Pharisees loved money and wealth. And you remember, we know what happened to Paul. Paul had it all going for him. But then he lost it all. Or let me put it another way. He gave it all up voluntarily when he became a Christian. And he talks about this in the book of Philippians. So if you would, turn forward in your Bible to Philippians. Go to chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. All right, everybody. But you got it? You in Philippians 3? How about reading verses 7 and 8, if you don't mind? You see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, the things that were of great value to me, I now count them to be worthless. Or as Butch's translation, rubbish. Some translations, garbage. And then in verse 8, he kind of really explains why. He says, everything that I had, I now count or now consider to be worthless because I found a greater treasure. And what was that greater treasure? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I mean, he was put in a situation where he had to choose. And he gave up all his prestige and wealth. And he says, and that really is garbage when you compare it to the great treasure of knowing Jesus personally. To walk with Him through this life, to walk with Him through the valley of the shadow of death, to have eternal life. What's that worth to you? Paul says, it's worth everything. It's worth me forsaking everything that I had. Now, this goes back to the, to the conversation we had about contentment. One of the reasons we said that Paul could be content in whatever circumstances he found himself in, because he remember he wrote those words that we read in Philippians 4. He wrote this from prison. And what we said was one of the, one of the keys to finding true contentment in life is to make sure you have found the true riches of life where real wealth is found, and that's in this relationship with him. I guess you could say what Paul found. He found that pearl of great value. You see, this is, this is the problem. This is the problem that the world faces. This is the problem we face when we're trying to reach the world for Christ, is that most people don't realize the great riches that Christ offers. They just don't see it. In fact, they don't see it worth anything. 
In fact, so many people see it as a problem because he's, he becomes an obstacle from allowing me to be free to do whatever I want to do. And yet they're blind to the great value and worth that he offers all of us. In one sense, I guess you could say, guys, he is the medicine, he is the cure that makes everything else in life expendable. Let me stop here. What comments or questions do you have? Probably. A practical application for those that have money, it's not the money that we spend our money that's most precious, it's our time. And so I think we, some may need to look at how they spend their time. You can spend that's money good. on children, but it's the time that's precious. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. Yeah, this is, this is as we get into this, we're going to really talk about, so, in fact, that's what we'll talk about next is because everybody starts reading this, and it's so easy just to focus on what does it mean, and I'm going to ask this question, what does it mean to, when he, in both of these parables, he's talking about selling everything you have, and you start reading that, and it kind of, some people start, that, that makes them nervous, and we don't look at, in both parables, the great treasure you get in return. Anybody else? Well, all our worldly possessions are constantly either decaying or eroding in value. Your money's getting, you know, inflation is eroding the value. Um, but obviously, the heavenly eternal life is not yeah. eroding the value. Yeah, and that, when you said that, Billy, that reminds me of uh, uh, what Solomon. I mean, he wrote Ecclesiastes, said in Ecclesiastes, remember he says, and this is also the problem with money and wealth. I have to leave it to others. And then he says, and who knows whether they will be wise or foolish with it. They may just squander everything. And he says, and that's all the fruit of my labor over my entire life, and who knows who will end up with it. Anybody else? He said, And then it's just kind of like this. And it can be a car, a house, it can be anything. New suit, whatever. Let's talk about this, guys. Let me, add, let me throw this out. I mean, he's, he's, used, he's got two parables that we can understand. And they're metaphors that have something to do with our spiritual life. And so, metaphorically speaking, what do you think he's saying when he, when, when he, in both parables, says that they sell everything they have? What do you think that means spiritually? To sell everything you have? Total surrender. Total surrender. And that's the big issue. That's the big problem. That's what most men are not willing to do. Where are we right now? Philippians? Turn back. We don't have far. Turn back to Romans. This, Paul in Romans puts, hits the nail on the head. Says this is the, this is the big issue. Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5. All right, Sonny, you got it? All right, well, we'll wait for you. All right. But because of your stubbornness, 
in your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself in the day of God's wrath, and His righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the problem. We have human beings have stubborn and unrepentant hearts. And that's why when I go through the investigative study, I make it absolutely clear that this repentance, that's what we're talking about. Repentance is absolutely necessary to become a Christian. The idea of surrendering. And when I say surrendering is best you understand what that means. Because what, what I'll end up doing is we'll go, and some of you, a lot of you have been through this. You know, there's 56, I think it, 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 the word repentance is used 56 times in the New Testament. And I go through about 10 verses. Unless you repent, you will perish, Jesus says. The message that he takes out into the world. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Luke 24. And you get to the end and you say, and I ask them, based on what we've read, how important is this in becoming a Christian, in coming to Christ? Well, they say it's absolutely necessary. And yet I've had men look at me and say, it's like one guy said to me, I'm not willing to surrender my life to anybody. Stubborn, that's what a stubborn and unrepentant heart is. I am not willing to surrender my life to anybody. I'm going to run the show. I want the freedom to live however I want to live. And this is man's great problem. That's why the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. You know, he doesn't want there to be a God. He doesn't want God to interfere with his life. But you have to scratch your head. This is the problem. And I think what this parable is saying you sell everything, but look at what you get. Let me give you an example in this first parable. This man that comes along, is, he doesn't have great means, but he, he's, as we said in the parable last week, that word hidden literally means to be buried. And so what we kind of surmised is he was probably renting this land, plowing it up, as men did back then, grow crops and then to take them and sell them and use them to eat for himself. And he finds this great treasure. But let's say this, this, this ordinary piece of land costs $10,000. And he really doesn't have it. So he goes and scrapes every nickel he has together, sells everything he has, and gets the land because he knows that the treasure is worth a million bucks. I mean, it's kind of a, a no-brainer. And this is why Jesus said something very significant that I think really relates to everything we're talking about, and that's in the book of Mark. So I'm going to ask you to go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Well said. Kind of, yeah, You're right so, on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the best way to really, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, when, when guys get really hung up on this, what I share with them is I say, let me give you a comparison, this idea of giving up. 
because this is the way this is this is what Christendom has always recognized this comparison this is what this really looks like is look at the picture of getting married what happens when a man and a woman get married well, next time you go to a wedding listen to the vows you know what you're doing when you get married you're giving yourself completely to this person all that I am all that I have is yours and she does the same thing and what you're giving up everything to enter into this relationship with her but what's it worth it's worth a great deal you wouldn't do it otherwise but it's so interesting people understand it when it comes to romance it's like a guy said to me once Richard you take this religion too seriously I said really I'm supposed to love the Lord my God. I, you know, this was a, a guy who proclaimed to be a Christian. I said, so we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're telling me I'm taking that too seriously? Come on now. <coughs> but Jesus puts the, hits the nail on the head of our problem as we think about the treasures and what we're willing to give, what we're willing to sacrifice. In uh, Mark, everybody Mark 8? Robert Jolly, you want to read for us 36 and 37? You know, this is really kind of what it gets down to. What does it really profit you? I mean, let's think it in terms of this way. He says, what does it really profit you if you get everything you want in life, but in the process you forfeit your soul? And then Jesus asks, well, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you willing to give in exchange for your soul? That's kind of what it all boils down to. And you remember we, we read this a while back in, in Psalm 49.8. It says, the redemption of a man's soul is very costly. In fact, the cost is so great, you don't have enough money to redeem your soul. I don't care how wealthy you are. What, what 49.8. In fact, it cost God a tremendous price for our redemption. The blood of his son. Peter puts it this way. This is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says, Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I want to read two quotes to you real quick and then see if you have a comment. First one comes from Tim Keller. He says, Anybody who will not give himself or herself utterly to him has not realized that he gave himself utterly for us. He says, We also do not seem to be able to grasp the vast treasure that he wants to give us. And I think that's so true. And then C.S. Lewis says, <coughs> if the happiness and the salvation of a human being lies in self-surrender, and self-surrender is in this parable to sell everything you have, 
He says, no one can make that surrender but himself. And he may refuse. And guys, based on everything that I do, all that I've witnessed these last 15 years doing what I'm doing, I must say that the Christian faith really boils down to one thing. It's the battle for man's heart. And what you even see within the church is, yeah, I want eternal life. I want God to bless me. I want God to give me good health. But I'm not sure about this surrendering. As one person put it, we want, all want the blessings of God, we just don't want the blessor. Don't want to let go. Want to hold on. Let me share with you a parable that I think kind of, uh, and again, going back to a romantic relationship, a relationship with our wives. Um, just kind of picture this. There's, there's a man, and he lives in San Francisco. He's a businessman. And he gets on a plane to fly to New York for several days of, of business meetings. He gets on the plane and he sits on the plane right next to this beautiful woman right there in business class. And they strike up a conversation. It turns out neither one of them are married. It turns out she is a businesswoman who lives in New York who is doing business in San Francisco. So they have four hours together flying to New York and they have a great conversation and they just really hit it off and while he's there he takes her to lunch and then they, they go to dinner one night and then he has to go back but they begin a relationship a cross country relationship and this man's taken by her he sends her flowers he sends her these, these lavish gifts he's seeking to woo her they spend time together. They go to the theater, which she loves. They go to museums, which she loves. They, they go to fancy restaurants, which she loves. And the man is so taken by her, and after about eight months, he proposes. And he's shocked at what she says. She says, I do love you. But you know, my career is in full throttle right now. You know, I've got so many friends here in New York. I'm real involved in, in several things in the community. I'm just not ready to make that kind of commitment. And he's crestfallen, but not to be deterred, he keeps pursuing. And the relation seems to, in his mind, gets better and better. And then he, six months later, he proposes again. And she responds the same way. I love you. I love being with you. I love all the blessing, all the great things you do for me. But I'm not ready for that kind of commitment. And it's just a matter of time before he realizes she doesn't really love me. She didn't want him. She just wanted all the things that he would give her. And this is the way so many people deal with God. Yeah, I want God to do this for me. I want him to do this for me. But I don't really want to surrender to him. But just as you can't have the great value between a man and a woman in, in, the, in the covenant of marriage unless you are willing to truly give yourself to that person, you can't really experience 
just the beauty and wonder of a relationship with God. To be delivered from the fear of death. To have eternal life. You really can't experience that unless you're willing to surrender. Now, in the studies I did of this parable, um, it was pointed out that the man who discovered the treasure wasn't really looking for it. I'm going to have to kind of go quickly, guys, because I've got to leave here in about 10 minutes. So I'm sorry we don't have more time to discuss this. I really apologize. Um, but in this, this second parable, the pearl merchant was, in fact, in search of pearls. He was seeking and searching. I was reading about one of the great uh, Christian thinkers back in the Middle Ages. This guy's name was Anselm of Canterbury. I mean, this is 500 years ago, guys. You know, five, life 500 years ago versus life today is so different. But he spoke of this universal inner desire and longing that every human being seems to possess. We're always seeking to satisfy these longings. And then he says this pearl merchant it kind of represents that. And so when you look at a man today in the modern world, when you look into a man's heart, what is, it, what is he seeking? What is he chasing? What is he trying to fill that emptiness in his soul and I, I've concluded there are three things that, 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 we pro, that men really look to. And this has nothing to do, and I'm, I'm not even talking about relationships, which obviously is, is, is at the heart of all this. But men are into achieving, particularly in their work. Men are into accumulating, storing up stuff. And men are into experiencing, whether it's hobbies or sports or anything that may make uh, uh, traveling, anything that makes you feel good. Achieving, accumulating, experiencing. But as we've said over and over, we talked about this when we talked about contentment. It ain't working. It doesn't work. It, as we said, it, brings, it can bring real delight into your life, but it, when you're all said and done, you end up empty. I don't know. Y'all remember? I'm not sure many of you see. I know some of you have seen this. This was Forbes did this a number of years ago when they did their 75th anniversary edition. They've been in a publication for 75 years. Do you remember this? Anybody? I've shown it some of It says, why we feel so bad, and then you open up the cover and it says, when we have it so good. Why is it we feel so bad when we have it so good? Why is it that here we are, the most prosperous country in the history of the world, and yet we lead the world in all kind of categories of social pathologies? Starting with depression. Someone just sent to me, it's sitting on my computer, an article from the New York Times says there's a 30-year surge, talks about this 30-year surge in suicide. And yet we have it so good. Something's not working. And what's happened, guys, is that we have allowed our desires to become attached to achievements, to objects and to experiences that bring delight and again they just don't satisfy now I'm not saying there, there, there's nothing wrong with it God, all these things are gifts from God but this is what Anselm said that is the key again this guy wrote 500 years ago I'm guessing that five seven hundred years ago he says this is this is the key 
He says, quote, our longings and desires have their, or, and most people don't realize this, our longings and desires have their origins in God himself. Because we're made in his image. And that's why only he can, only, we can only be fulfilled by him. And that's where this parable comes into play. Alistair McGrath, in his book, The Unknown God, which I read about 15 years ago, I was reminded, he wrote a chapter in the book, and it was on this pearl, the, the merchant and the pearl. And he says, the pearl merchant finds this priceless pearl and sells everything in order to possess it. In other words, he found what was of supreme value. And this is the question that we all have to ask. Do we see Jesus in the kingdom of God as such? What we also need to recognize from this parable, and it really applies to us, is everything else he possessed seems of little value in comparison to the pearl of great value. It's pretty clear from the parable that the merchant already possesses a certain number of pearls. In fact, McGrath says, I quote, Perhaps he bought them in the hope that they would provide him the satisfaction he longed for, yet he's still looking for something really special. He's always looking, always looking. And then when he finally finds it, he sells everything to take hold of it. Spiritually speaking, he surrendered all in order to take hold of Christ. <coughs> and he gladly... McGrath says, abandoned everything, all that he had accumulated to possess this magnificent possession. And guys, this is what salvation and a right relationship with God is worth. Everything. <clears throat> McGrath closes with this chapter, with these powerful words. He's very eloquent. Listen to this. He says this. What he, the pearl merchant, had obtained previously was a preparation for this final purchase. He had come to know the true value of what he possessed, and he was looking for the final culmination of his search for a precious pearl. When he saw it, <clears throat> he knew that everything already in his possession was dull and lackluster by comparison. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just as the brilliance of the sun drowns that of the stars so that they can be seen only at night, so this great pearl allowed the merchant to see what he had already owned in a different light. What he had thought would satisfy him proved only to disclose his dissatisfaction and make him long for something which was for the moment beyond his grasp. And then he saw that special pearl and he knew, I have to have that. And what really strikes me, guys, that if we don't see Jesus as that pearl of great value, then we don't truly understand who he is. And we don't really understand what he has done for us. And we don't really understand the great treasure that he offers us. And in thinking through of, of a good illustration to close this with, I was reminded of a book that I read by uh, Bob Buford called Finishing Strong. And what, what Buford did is he went out and interviewed a number of very prominent Christian men, Christian thinkers, Christian business people, um, and talked to them. And, and, and the, it was about how do you finish strong in life? 
because you know, as I look around this particular table, uh, you know, there there are a lot of us. We're some are in the sec uh, in the sec all of us clearly in the second half of life, some in the fourth quarter of life. And he says, "How do you finish strong? Because so many men finish badly." And one of the people he interviews, it's a great interview, is Dallas Willard. Willard, the, the very prominent philosopher from USC, was head of the philosophy department for years. And Willard tells, gives an illustration and tells a true story. Both of these are true stories. The first, some of you may have heard me share before, is about dog racing. Any, anybody here been into dog races before? All right, Robert, well, how, how do they get the dogs to run? Chase a fake rabbit. And Willard says, this, this is a true story. He says, they train these dogs to chase an electric rabbit. And one night, this is in Florida, he says, they're chasing the rabbit and the rabbit broke down. And the dogs caught it. Never before these dogs ever caught the rabbit. They caught the rabbit. He says, but they didn't know what to do with it. He said they were leaping around, yelping and biting one another. They were totally confused about what is happening. And Willard says, I think that's a picture of what happens to all sorts of people who catch their rabbit in this life. He says whether it's wealth or fame or beauty or a bigger house or whatever, the prize isn't what they thought it would be. And when they finally get it, he says, they don't know what to do with their lives. And he says, this, in my opinion, he says, is a huge factor why so many men finish badly. And then he says this. People need a rabbit that won't break down. And from this parable, I think we can learn that the only rabbit that will never break down is this pearl of great value, is Jesus himself. <clears throat> and then he goes and tells another story. He follows the rabbit, the, uh, the dog racing story with the story. And it may sound familiar to you because it was in my blog <clears throat> about six months ago. He tells the story of Lawrence Dutton. Dutton was a member of the Emerson String Quartet, which is this wonderful classical music ensemble. <clears throat> and Dutton did everything right. And he was very talented. At an early age, he... He, I don't know what, what instrument he played, but he, he played as a kid. He went to Juilliard. He had all the right accomplishments along the way, and then he basically hit the mother load when he and the members of the quartet, they won two Grammys. And Willard says Dutton experienced the greatest euphoria he had ever experienced. But then ironically... A short time later, he went into a real depression. And he said, because he felt, I've done everything as far as a music career. How much higher can a man jump? You see what happened? He was seeking fulfillment and satisfaction. He was chasing rabbits that would break down. And when he finally got the rabbit he wanted, it left him empty and depressed. And Willard says, and it was soon after that that someone led him to Christ. In fact, Willard put it, these were his terms, he became a very serious Christian. What did he do? He did what the pearl merchant did. He said it sold everything he had. He surrendered. He still played music. He didn't give up his career. 
He didn't give up his wealth, but he surrendered. He got his he got the things in his life in their proper place. You see, we take the things in this life and we make them into idols. We give them a power God never intended them to have in our lives. And basically, to become a Christian doesn't mean you give all these up. It means you get, they, they, they find their proper place in your life. And he becomes first. And that's what happened in Dutton's life. And when that happened, everything changed for him. Everything. He continued to play music. And he went on to win four more Grammys. And they were nice. But they really were inconsequential. Because he had found the pearl of great value. He had surrendered his all to get it. And he found what he was looking for. Peace and contentment and fulfillment. As I said, he continued to play music. He continued to win awards. And winning was, you know, to win is great. The only difference, he no longer looked to Grammy Awards to satisfy him because he found the rabbit that doesn't break down. He found the pearl of great value. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III, founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.